Grab your trowel and a cup of coffee. You're listening to Archeo Cafe. I'm your host, Otis Crandell. Welcome to another episode of Archeo Cafe. I'm Otis, and today I'm joined by Bonnie Glencross and Gary Warwick at Wilfrid Laurier University in Waterloo, Ontario, Canada, and Louis Lesage, director of the Bureau du Neo-Wenzion of the Huron-Wendat Nation in Wendake, Quebec, Canada. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Otis. Thank you. What initially got each of you interested in archaeology? <laughs> I will, I will let maybe Bonnie and Gary uh, start it because I'm, I'm, the, I'm the latest guy in the, in the team. <laughs> okay, well, um, I have to say I've always found biology and culture, uh, society and history, the past really fascinating. And I just had never really considered how they were related and that there was even an area of study that would allow me to investigate at that intersection of these different disciplines. And it wasn't until I took an introduction to anthropology course as an elective at university. At the time, I was actually a business major, and I was really uncertain yeah. as to what anthropology <laughs> was. Um, and I just really needed an elective to fit my schedule. <laughs> but I recall within the first couple of weeks, the course started, and I started considering the possibilities. And then there was a series of different uh, guest speakers and I just became wholly convinced that anthropology and specifically archaeology and bioarchaeology uh, were for me. So that's uh, really how I got started. Oh, wow. Well, I, I guess it's not as much job security as studying business, but I'm sure it's a lot more interesting, though. <laughs> I totally agree. <laughs> what about you, Gary? Um, I, I guess I first became interested in archaeology in grade 11. Um, at that time in the curriculum in Ontario in high school, grade 11 history was ancient history. And I had a, a teacher who was particularly fascinated by archaeology. And he, he used to uh, he used uh, National Geographic articles and things like that to illustrate different points that he was making in different lessons. And, and so I became really interested in the archaeology, but it was classical archaeology, ancient Greece and Rome, that I, that I really grabbed my fancy, uh, particularly underwater archaeology. I wanted to dive on shipwrecks, uh, oh. you know, in the Mediterranean. You know, that was my, that was my dream. And then I, at McMaster in the mid-70s, I enrolled in classical civilization, Greek and Latin, and, and I became a little disillusioned with, at that time, how classical archaeology was just about collecting statues and fancy mm -hmm. dancy objects to put in a museum right and i thought no that's that's not my interest i want to know how people lived in the past right and then i discovered um through my anthropology course i took an anthropology course in first year that, that there was local uh archaeology and uh read uh, jim wright's ontario prehistory published in 1972 right and i thought well i could do archaeology here in ontario <laughs> and that's how it, that's that's what happened i transferred out of classical civilization uh, uh, classical studies and mm -hmm. into anthropology archaeology did you do any underwater work you know i didn't i i i haven't dove since my early 20s but in terms of scuba diving but yeah i've always been fascinated by underwater archaeology hmm. Louis, what about you? Yeah, my my path is uh, is much more different because uh, yes, I, when I was young, I really liked, as Gary said, the 
the National Geographic magazine and stuff about uh, Egyptology and you know all, all what what the archaeologists were finding in in, in Egypt. Every kid loved that, but oh, my yeah. path is much more different. I'm, I'm uh, my 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 wish was to become a biologist, a wildlife biologist, which, which I am actually. I'm, uh, I've done uh, studies on deer and uh, snow geese and stuff like that. And uh, but my role today as a director of the new NCO office or the Euron when that band council, uh, as I am a member of the Euron when that nation. Uh, my role now is to 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 make sure that the rights of the Euron Wendat and the the heritage is known and protected. And so rapidly, uh, we I've been involved in different consultation projects in uh, southern Ontario mostly uh, to make sure that all the archaeology there is done respectfully to. Well, to, to, to document uh, our uh, uh, archaeological sites and to sometimes protect them, sometimes to dig them. And so my role is more now as a, as a director to make sure that the work is done properly with mm -hmm. uh, good people in collaboration with uh, universities and uh, many universities and many archaeologists in southern Ontario. And this is where I finally found my now good friends, Bonnie and Gary, that mm -hmm. uh, uh, our path just crossed a couple of years ago and we start to make a, a collaboration, uh, different projects and uh, yes, and their, their, their ways of, uh, the way that they want to, to collaborate and to make better in archaeology for uh, the new archaeologists and for the future archaeologists uh, oh. in, in a respectful way, uh, well, to, to protect and to, to make sure that uh, First Nations uh, uh, heritage is protected, but also that the First Nation representative are involved in, in decisions and uh, research and stuff like that. So this is how I this is why I said I, I, I'm the latest guy in, in the team, but I'm, I'm, it's more from a professional point of view that I joined uh, these two, these two persons, these two friends. I guess you got a lot of different origins here, all coming towards the same place. What would each of you say is the most interesting discovery that you've made? Um, this is a great question. It's a question that's asked frequently but I always struggle to answer that question. <laughs> I've worked in a lot of different locations, uh, Ontario, which is my home. So it's, you know, near and dear to me. Um, I've worked in the American Southeast, in Bermuda, in Turkey. Um, the sites are all different time periods. And I just find every, every site, every research question is unique and, and interesting. It's really hard to, to say, yeah. to pick one over the other. So, What about you, Gary? Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting. One of, one of the most memorable discoveries I've made, and it has nothing to do with archaeology in Ontario, I was working with Knut Fladmark, and Eric Damkar, uh, he was a grad student at Simon Fraser University, as, as was I. 
up in the mountains eyes a, a provincial park in northern uh, northwestern BC, british columbia and it's a, a volcanic complex that's why it's designated as a provincial park and it's a source of obsidian for most of the northwest coast of uh, of north america um, and so we were there to find uh, quarry sites as well as campsites connected with mm. uh, obsidian. And on one site, we were excavating it. And, and of course, being volcanic, every so often volcanoes erupted in the past. And there was a blanket of ash, a layer of ash, which I'd never seen before, right? You know, kind of like Pompeii almost, sealing uh, deposits underneath the ash. So we had to dig through the ash that I think was dated at something like 6,000 years ago or something. I probably have mm-hmm. the dates wrong, right? But but anyway, underneath that, there were there were uh, all these little wee uh, obsidian microblades that were all nestled together, all, all parallel to one another uh, in the soil. And I thought at the time, and I don't know if this is the case, but I found it fascinating because I could imagine someone leaving a little hide a bag with these microblades inside and the hide bag disappearing over time. And then just the little microblades just still in their position they were in, in the bag in the ground. Right. So for me, that's, that was one of those encounters with a moment and a person who left that little bag of blades uh, in the ground. And for me, that's, that's really the, the fascinating things of archeology. span So that's a memorable one. Yeah. There's the little things that said to tell a story. Louis, what would you say is the most interesting thing that you've discovered? Well, my the most interesting the thing that I've discovered from archaeology is uh, at another level. It's that uh, from a First Nation point of view, from a First Nation perspective, and it's uh, that surprisingly, our people actually today still don't know the richness of our heritage, the number, the so high number of Euron Wendat site that have been discovered yet. Uh, over today, I think it's over 900 Euron Wendat site that are known in Southern Ontario. More are discovered every year. Uh, many of them have been destroyed in the last uh, centuries, probably over one or, or 2,000, we just don't know. So today we we just discovered the richness and the abundance of what our ancestors have done in the past, have the, the number of, of, of sites that these ancestors have produced. So we just we are just uh, learning that the Euron when that was a civilization and was was uh, so important uh, mm-hmm. and in canada we we think and uh, well we believe that the euro and when that nation has the the highest number of of, uh, of uh, archaeological site from all the first nations in canada even more mm-hmm. than the Inuit people so it's it's just something that we that we discover now and, and that we we can see the the the, the importance of uh, what our ancestors have done in the past, have created, and that's that's very fascinating to 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 be the actor of these discoveries and to to see the magnitude of the importance of of, uh, of what our ancestors have 
have uh, left for us today and things that we have to discover from them. Are a lot of them discovered through CRM, through cultural resource management excavations, or is there another means that most of them are discovered through? Well, they, they, are, they have been discovered in the last century because of uh, urban development, uh, oh, because okay. of, uh, academics, uh, universities decide to, to, to dig in some uh, in places where uh, there is a high potential to find villages or sites mm -hmm. and, and they find them. So it's, uh, it's uh, huge, the, the number yeah. and the area covered by... Uh, by these sites. What are some of the ways that current legislation, particularly related to commercial archaeology or cultural resource management, conflicts with the interests of indigenous communities? Um, for me, cultural resource management archaeology or, or contract archaeology uh, um, in, in um, the context of development, land development um, in Ontario, it, the legislation is is dates back to the 1970s and the 1980s, and it hasn't really been updated very much since 1990. There's been little tweaks and things like that because of uh, Supreme Court decisions in terms of involving um, Indigenous nations more and more in decisions over land development, but. When push comes to shove in Ontario, it's it's really still the 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 the, uh, the purview of the land developer, the province, the Ontario government, and archaeology uh, with with an indigenous voice there. But often the indigenous voice is uh, added after the fact um, when when the land development has actually been designed and and then indigenous people are asked to you know comment on it well it's a little late because if if uh, an archaeologist goes out and surveys that property uh, not knowing what's there prior um, and for most of ontario we don't know what's out there i mean we just don't have an inventory of all the sites in ontario uh, and and you'll never will right so archaeologists right. are the first ones to find sites when they do, especially when they find a big village site, and it's a relatively small development, say a 40-acre development, and, and you find a village site that can be 10 acres in size, it's pretty mm -hmm. difficult for a developer to plan around that, right? So despite Ontario, uh, the Ministry of, of Heritage, Tourism, Sport, and Culture Industries, despite them... Um, saying in the best of all possible worlds, especially for large village sites, maybe try to avoid them, right? Well, it's it, because of how the whole process works, it's pretty difficult to avoid it at the last minute because that's really what the archaeologist has been asked to do at the last minute, right? It's it's not like archaeologists go out prior to a developer even thinking of buying a property. And, you know, I mean, that, that would be kind mm -hmm. of the right thing to do, right? You know, whether they should even develop a certain property with a large archaeological site on that that is of value and significance and and of interest to Indigenous nations and should be set aside, but it doesn't work that way, right? So more often than not, ar archaeological sites that are found have to be excavated. And, and even though we carefully document and keep all the artifacts and all the notes and all the photographs and everything else, write a nice report, um, it's still not the same for Indigenous nations, Indigenous peoples um, that still want that place in the ground the way it has been for mm -hmm. thousands of years. Louis, you probably want to comment on that. 
Yeah, well, just just to add from uh, from what Gary just said, it's uh, development. It's 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 almost impossible to go against development because somewhere somehow uh, dev developers will go through legislation. They will have permits. Uh, if it's not this year, it will be in ten years and twenty years. Uh, and it's it's uh, it's it's a strange situation that is very uncomfortable for a First Nation perspective. Uh, yes, we want to protect most of the site and we would love to, to keep them protected for uh, the next centuries. But sometimes you, you just have no choice because uh, the promoter do, do have uh, the permits and well, and, and now we have to ask ourselves the question, okay, how can we do things better and what can we learn from this site for example and that's that's the question that we that we are always uh, asking to our okay, what can we learn here and this is why well we are a first nation that is interested in in science in knowledge in uh, to document the life and times of, uh, of their ancestors, and and we want to know, okay, what we want to learn more and to better understand how it was and how our ancestors were 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 living. And unfortunately, archaeology is 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 a destructive uh, process. You have to destroy a, a site, but you have also to learn as much as possible from this aside from this let's say this destruction so yes uh, we we had to 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 do this sad job but now today we know more about how we were living not so long ago how our ancestors were living what they were eating how they were hunting how they were traveling uh, how they were trading uh stuff with other first nations and and today we, we we better understand the life and time of our ancestors, and we we also ask the questions to ourselves. Okay, what would our ancestors would respond today if if they were sitting on our chairs and wearing our shoes? What would they decide if they were? Uh, at our place and sometimes said probably they would say well if you want to learn more about me well go ahead move move and 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 do do the research do do the archaeological work because this is an opportunity to better know about me you will understand how i was living so that's the kind of of positive answers that we that, that we find and that we used to say okay let's let's do this the the job let's do the sad job let's say that to, to destroy a site but at the end we will know more and we will learn from from that on a similar topic what are some of the conventional methods used in archaeology in ontario that are problematic um I think Louis made an excellent point there in terms of uh, speaking to the nature of archaeology, the destructive nature of archaeology. 
Um, if you say archaeology, it's equated with digging. If you say archaeology, people immediately think about the field aspect and the excavation, and it is destructive. Once the site is dug, it only exists in the records that you keep, um, and you can't go back. You can't restore a site to its original uh, state, right? Um, so I think traditionally in Ontario, uh, looking for sites, it, the approach has been uh, shovel test pits and excavation, um, sometimes to the extent on uh, village sites where the fields are, if it's found in a plowed site, a site that the topsoils have been disturbed, uh, sometimes heavy equipment has been used to strip away uh, the topsoil to reveal those underlying features. Um, and while those methods are really very effective, um, the approaches are highly intrusive and they have the potential to um, be just, you know, even more destructive. Mm -hmm. um, I'll just tell a little story and it's not going to take long. Um, okay. I was involved in a project uh, on the Red Hill Creek Expressway in Hamilton, which was very controversial. Six nations of the Grand River were opposed to its construction because of the number of archaeological sites that were in the path of the future expressway that ran down the Niagara Escarpment in Hamilton, Ontario, right? And um, so I was involved very early on in the Ministry of Transportation when I worked for them. And then when I got a job at Wilfrid Laurier University, I was asked by Six Nations of the Grand River to help monitor the ongoing archaeology that was restarted um, under a new government. They, they revived the project. And um, so uh, I was asked by uh, an elder, Norman Jacobs, um, he was a, a faith keeper. He was in care of the wampum belts for the entire Six Nations Confederacy in, in Ontario. Um, and so we struck up a friendship and he asked me, he said, Gary, he said, is there any way uh, that, that you can scan the ground um, with, with some kind of X-ray machine rather than digging holes? Because he said, by, by you looking for archaeological sites, you're digging a hole in the ground, right? And I said, yeah, that's called a shovel test. But he goes, can that disturb a burial? I said, yeah, potentially. He goes, well, that's the problem I have with archaeology is when you're digging, you have the potential, even though it's small to disturb things, yet you shouldn't, right? And, and it, that, that conversation stuck in my brain. That was back in 2000. And it's stuck in my brain the rest of my uh, archaeological career since that time. How common is it to find burials or other sacred remains at sites in southern Ontario? Well, many of the sites um, that date after, say, 1300 AD or CE, I should say, um, Huron-Wendat sites, uh, practice the Huron-Wendat practice ossuary burial, um, where remains are placed in a large communal pit. But these are often located quite a distance from villages. And um, for archaeologists, often our focus is, is uh, the tendency is to find the village much more easily. And that is the focus. And, you know, we don't look beyond that. Um, and with some of the techniques that we use, it's actually some of the traditional survey techniques. It would actually be difficult to find um, uh, uh, ossuary. But that's not to say that there hasn't been many. Uh, Gary could probably tell you exact, not exactly, but um, an estimate of the number of, of ossuaries that have been found in Ontario. Um, but there is, a, as he said, always that possibility of disturbance. And um, 
you know, can have devastating results. So. Yeah. Well, as you've noted, when people think of archaeology among archaeologists and particularly among non-archaeologists, they're thinking about digging. But why is it important to conserve archaeological sites in situ as much as possible? Uh, it's, uh, again, from the Euron when that uh, perspective, uh, sometimes, as I said, we don't have the choice because uh, the project has been accepted, the promoter do have uh, their license and, and they will they will do the job and they will destroy it and yes, and we, will, we will dig it and learn from it. But uh, the band council here, the Euron when that nation do have a, a resolution that said, we want to protect sites. Well, the first option is to protect site, and then if if it's necessary, we we can manage and we can uh, accommodate the project and, and destroy it. But we want it. It it happened a couple of times that we said no. We, we want to to protect the site because uh, we want to protect it for the next generations for other First Nations generations of archaeologists and, and, and other archaeologists in, in the future. And probably, hopefully, there will be new techniques, as uh, Gary said, is there a, an X-ray uh, technique that, that do exist to, to, to see what's underground? Today, it doesn't exist. But maybe in 10, 20, 40, 50 years, this technique will exist and fortunately there will be a virgin archaeological site that will have never been touched that that will be there to use these uh, technique in in the future we, you know we will we will go in mars on mars in the, in the coming <laughs> year yeah. but don't have the technique to to look uh, two two centimeters under our feet so that's 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 amazing. Probably in, in the near future, these kind of techniques will be available and there will be no more uh, destruction. So saying that, we, we, we want to, to protect some sites and some, some of them uh, are protected for, uh, we don't know how many years, but for, for, future, uh, for the future uh, generations of archaeologists. You know, I think that we're constantly coming up with new methods even if we look 20 years ago, some of the stuff that's standard now, like ground penetrating radar, was was uncommon even a few decades ago. Yeah, I, I just wanted to remind everyone too that um, that uh, uh, for the Huron Wendat uh, village sites, especially, uh, I mean, in my own PhD work, I tried to get a handle. I was looking at population for the entire period of of time that the Huron Wendat lived in villages, right? Uh, maize, beans, and squash agriculture, longhouse villages. And and I determined for South Central Ontario that that probably the original inventory of sites from, from about 1000 AD to 1650 AD, so a period of 650 years, was probably about 750 sites, no more than that. And that we only have uh, about 450 of those sites known. and. And a lot of those sites have probably been destroyed underneath Toronto, mm -hmm. the urbanization, uh, through other activities, quarrying activities, all of that stuff. So in, under, in other words, as years tumble on, 
the number of Huron Wendat village sites is decreasing year by year by year. So uh, if we don't say no to <laughs> to taking them out of the ground right. now, uh, we're not going to have any left in the future, right? Um, right. So, yeah, good, very good point. What is indigenous archaeology? That's archaeology, and I mean. You know, George Nicholas uh, from Simon Fraser University, along with Tom Andrews uh, from the Northwest Territories, two archaeologists, they kind of, for Canada, put that name in the books, you know, as archaeology with, by, and for Indigenous nations or Indigenous peoples. And and really, in the 1990s, 1997, when they wrote that that article and coined that term and defined it, um, they... Archaeology in Canada was just beginning um, to involve Indigenous peoples more and more and more. But I always think of it as uh, uh, archaeologists, the archaeology bus. And uh, up until the 1990s, only archaeologists were allowed on the bus and archaeologists were driving the bus. And sometimes, you know, maybe an Indigenous person was picked up and shuttled along on the bus for a while on a particular project, but then eventually they got off again, right? So archaeologists were in control of the archaeology. They claimed to be the owners of the archaeological record. Um, uh, and uh, that's changing now. That's changing. We're still not to the point, though, where where the bus, uh, the archaeology bus for Indigenous nations archaeological heritage is is being driven by indigenous peoples with archaeologists getting on and off the bus we're we're not there yet so so indigenous archaeology for me is kind of a process where where the end goal for me is to have indigenous peoples driving the archaeological bus with archaeologists getting on and off as we are asked to right and so we're not there yet we're we're, we're not there yet but we're working toward that goal so i don't know if Louis and Bonnie want to add anything to that? Well, I I, I think that the the image of the bus is, is exactly uh, is 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 right. But I see uh, Aboriginal archaeology as uh, as uh, collaborative research too. It's and, and collaborative means to collaborate at every steps of the research, mm-hmm. which means uh, the First Nation should ask the questions of the project, of, 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 of the research, should propose hypotheses, should uh, do the archaeological, to, to, well, should participate to the archaeological work, should also look at the data, uh, propose some interpretation, uh, be present when it's time to, to write papers or reports, uh, to, to propose some conclusions, you know, it's 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 uh, to be involved in in all the aspects of the research, and I think that actually one of the one of the main problem is that when when it's time to collaborate with uh, archaeologists, with academics, with universities, it can be very impressive from uh, First Nations. Uh, not so many do have a universe uh, a a. a uh, a degree from universities. Uh, it's it it you know it it can be very impressive for a, a First Nation person to say, okay, now I will have to uh, propose hypothesis to an archaeologist to a, an archaeologist from uh, Wilfrid Laurier University, 
it's a, it's a, it can be very impressive, but this this uh, this step has to be done, has to be facilitated, and uh, the future is, is is a better communication, a better uh, uh, well for academics to go in communities to to to, to develop relationship, friendship with people, and. Uh, yeah, it's it's it's. I think it's the it's that big step that can be a, a problem actually. Uh, First Nation want to be involved. They want to be there. They, they they want to 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 participate to collaborate. But uh, it's still uh, yes. It it can be a, a huge step for many to to. To knock on the door of a university and said, "Well, uh, you know what? Uh, uh, we have uh, questions in our head, and we want to collaborate on a, on a, an archaeological project. Uh, it's uh, it's quite something." Yeah. Mm -hmm. I absolutely agree. I love the bus analogy, and um, it's true. Uh, it, there needs, to, you know. The archaeology bus needs to be steered by that descendant community. Um, every any every descendant community um, who has a vested interest in, you know, obviously a vested interest in their heritage. So, yeah. But I I could have something very personal, and and you know, I, as I said earlier, I'm from uh, the uh, biological. Uh, wildlife biologist and, and I and I've done uh, research on in, in biology and and what I what is amazing is that people in archaeology and it's just between between us so for sure people in archaeology are much more open-minded than people for example in in other uh, science disciplines for oh, example yeah. biology oh yeah people in in, in archaeology are 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 curious uh, uh, it's easy to to be friend with them. It's uh, they are open. They they want to collaborate to put you uh, on a paper to have your point of view uh, to uh, collaborate uh, in in writings and uh, it's uh, it's uh, it's a nice discipline. Uh, people there are usually very uh, yeah open minded. So uh, the future is is bright. I think. Oh, that's good. One of your ongoing projects is the Tay Point Archaeology Project. Could you tell us a bit about the project and the archaeological site? At Wilfrid Laurier University, if you are an archaeology major, you are actually required to do fieldwork um, as a progression requirement to get your degree. And to allow students that opportunity, um, the different faculty members are need to, you know, provide that opportunity through their own research or through establishing um, field projects in, in what we call, you know, field schools. Uh, so the Point Archaeology Project um, actually was established in this, uh, you know, in part for that reason, because uh, uh, knowing that here we are, we're going to be training the next generation and we really wanted to instill these um, these uh, 
important aspects of an indigenous archaeology and also a sustainable archaeology, right? This idea about um, moving towards a conservation ethos. Uh, so in 2013, um, we did approach um, the Huron-Wendat Nation to talk about um, the opportunity to, you know, if there were opportunities to provide that training in uh, perhaps sites that were located in uh, uh, Huronia in Ontario. Um, and there was one site uh, that um, a colleague from Laurentian, Alicia Hawkins, um, it had been brought to her attention through the Ontario Archaeology Society. A member had been out collecting mushrooms um, and had noticed um, uh, ceramics and uh, firecracked rock and had reported the site, but also noted that it had been um, disturbed as well, that there had been recent activity there. Uh, so Alicia had led the chapter in um, a weekend where they uh, cleaned up uh, the areas that had been disturbed and um, tried to sort of camouflage those areas. And Gary and I had helped out with that. Um, so that was the uh, one of the sites that we um, had spoken to uh, Louis and um, other members of the Huron-Wendat Nation at a meeting in 2013. Um, so the different sites, uh, there are a number of different sites. It's uh, Tay Point is um, jets out into Georgian Bay. It's uh, really where modern day Penetanguishene and Midland are. And uh, the sites are at Hitsistari, which is an early 17th century Huron-Wendat village. Um, and also the Chu site, uh, which is sequential or follows the inhabitants of, we believe the inhabitants of Hitsistari moved to the Chu site uh, afterwards. Um, and there are some other sites that, have rec that are recognized, um, but the point itself still has to be fully surveyed. There would, there would still be uh, work to do there as well. Uh, I don't know, Gary, did you want to add anything? Yeah, no, I, you know, that's, um, I mean, the site's about, uh, it exists in a, a woodlot. It's about two hectares in size, a little bit over. But Bonnie and I think from the evidence that's been collected, uh, through archaeology, as well as historical uh, and map uh, uh, information, mapping information from the 17th century, we, we think that the Ahatsistari site is the remains of the village of Caragua, which is uh, really important because it uh, Caragua was the host village for the very first uh, French um a priest who went into the interior to uh, the Wendat, uh, Huron-Wendat country in Simcoe County, um, uh, uh, Joseph Le Caron, he was a Rekele priest, and he overwintered in the village of Caragua. And we feel, and so did Samuel de Champlain, he stayed there a little bit too, along with several of his men, musketeers, right? Um, uh, and uh, they, they overwintered in a small cabin just on the the outskirts of Caragua. And we feel that Ahatsistari is that village of Caragua. There's a number of, mm. of uh, in, interesting uh, pieces of data, um, historical mapping and archaeological that, that indicate that that's of the right size, the right age, the right place. Um, and there's not really any other contenders on all of Tay Point that we know of. So, so, we're not certain, but but that adds that adds significance um, from a historical point of view. Um, 
uh, to to uh, preserving that particular site. What is the role of the Huron Wendat Nation in the Tape Point Archaeology Project? Well, uh, the role is uh, we don't we don't have a you know some Aboriginal rights on these sites. It's it's it's, it's a strange and complex situation, but the role that we have is uh, is to well to to give permission to uh, Gary and 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 Bonnie's uh, team to to go there and to work uh, on the site uh, every year, but it's uh, it's a permission that that they they ask us, but technically they the, the, they could do the job without our permission, but uh, from a good relation from a good relation perspective from friendship perspective they, they are uh, asking us every year to to go there and to to do some uh, archaeological work what are some of the objectives of the different people involved for example the archaeologists the huron wendat nation other stakeholders well from our perspective this is the kind of research that is fascinating because, as Gary said, it's a place where uh, Joseph Le Caron could have been, uh, uh, Champlain could have, could also have been there. It's probably uh, the famous village uh, that have been visited by those guys. So, from our perspective, it's 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 fascinating to to document the site and to make the investigation it, it's it, it's like an investigation to to confirm or not if the the archives the written documents are confirmed by uh, by today's uh, findings so that's that's the kind of uh, it's it's uh, it's fascinating to 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 be involved in this in these kind of research and uh, discoveries one aspect of your work is the idea of minimally invasive strategies. Could you tell us what this means? Sure. Um, so minimally invasive strategies are really trying to use um, techniques, field methods that are non-invasive or minimally invasive uh, for recovery in the field and really meant to act to lighten the archaeological footprint by minimizing the disturbance of soils. So different techniques, uh, some of the things that you already mentioned, uh, things like uh, ground penetrating radar, although for us that's an impossibility because this is a forested woodlot um, and there are limitations with different methodologies. Um, but certainly, a, you know, there's a variety of different methods that we can use and, and really it's the package of them together as well to try and, uh, like I said, lighten that footprint um, minimize the amount of destruction and and work towards more of a conservation ethos. Uh, try and maintain as much as of the site, uh, the soils undisturbed as possible. Why is it important to strive for minimally invasive strategies? Um, I think it's important in terms of, as I said, moving towards this conservation ethos. Uh, Gary had talked about um, sort of really... Uh, the continuation of excavation, really uh, removing sites from the record or destroying sites 
um, and to continue at that pace, uh, certainly in the future, right, to, to, to maintain the record, to have sites there. Um, but there's other aspects as well with all of the, exca- in Ontario, I mean, excavations have been ongoing for hundreds of years. And um, another aspect of this is the material that is recovered. Uh, we're generating these collections of hundreds of thousands of artifacts mm-hmm. and uh, that needs to be stored and maintained and um, and the records kept and that being able to do that with such a large uh resource or, or, you know, so many um, artifacts is uh, it's, it's creating a problem as well. Uh, so it's about making archaeology sustainable and working towards that conservation ethos. What are some of the methods and techniques that you've used to put this into practice? Right. So at Tay Point, um, when we first began investigating at Hitsistari, uh, some of the objectives were to define the limits of the site and to get some sense of how large the site was. And we did that through something called pedestrian sur- survey or surface survey, uh, where it's simply like a search line and you walk across and you're searching the surface uh, for things that are already exposed. And that really, um, in doing that, we were able to locate uh, its uh now the number is up to 16 middens or garbage pits, which usually are found around the perimeter of a village. So it starts to help to tell us the size and the limits of the site. Uh, We've used a magnetic susceptibility survey, uh, which looks at the magnetic field, um, which can be altered through human activity, uh, particularly things like uh, burning or fires, so hearths. um, And this has been used successfully in Quebec at similar sites where they were able to locate the hearths of longhouses. And the technique really, um, all it involves is uh, taking readings every uh, meter or so, and you're essentially taking the um, equipment and just really touching the surface, uh, the soils. Um, We've used metal detector survey, which is a little bit more destructive, obviously, um, if you ground truth, if you want to dig up the artifacts, but metal detectors can locate metal items uh, and they can even give you a sense of the type of metal that is um, underneath the soils. Uh, There's a number of different um, other approaches. We limited our excavation. We had a sampling strategy. We only sampled disturbed middens. In the past, middens would be completely excavated. We excavated a a meter unit. Uh, And then another thing was uh, fine sieving. Uh, So when the soils are recovered and sieved, um, we used a, a very fine, small screen and even water screening. Uh, to ensure that we're collecting everything. Are there any other non-invasive or minimally invasive methods that you know of that maybe you hope to use in the future or that other people might consider? Um, I think Gary can uh, speak to this because he's actually, we've been working with a graduate student uh, on uh, a new strategy. So this involves soil chemistry sampling, but I'll let Gary uh, talk about that. Yeah, so um, we, we, Bonnie and I, in the very first field school in 2014, were, were interested in, um, and we took samples from different uh, layers in one of the uh, um, un, undisturbed middens. We did excavate a, a one meter square in an undisturbed midden, or, 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 and by undisturbed, we mean 
that that uh, illicit digging has occurred at the site, and we know that. Um, we've actually um, documented that and and contacted one of the people who had been doing digging uh, for twenty or thirty years out there, right, um, in, in the Midden areas, and uh, we've been successfully working with this person and getting access to the collection. But that's a whole other story. But it's interesting um, that, that and controversial that kind of work, right? But nevertheless, through through his documentation of where he was digging, we 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 knew what midden areas had been disturbed already by by him and others who were digging there. So, as Bonnie said, we targeted those areas mostly, but we wanted to get a sense from an undisturbed midden what was the soil chemistry like, uh, and, and we did some rude and crude kind of analysis in terms of pH levels and things like that. It didn't discover all that much. Um, and it didn't vary from the top to the bottom. We were hoping there would be differences. But but then we got the idea, and, and this is not new. It was tried out back in as early as the 1960s um, uh, by Conrad Heidenreich, a geographer, uh, now retired, formerly at York University, who worked with a colleague and, and successfully delineated longhouse areas through fairly crude, rude <laughs> soil chemistry tests that were available in 1960s, 1970 at the time. But but they've been refined quite a bit. And and we um, knew about a, a PhD student at McMaster, Beatrice Fletcher is her name. And Beatrice has uh, got access to pretty high-tech uh, analytic uh, machines in the Department of Geography um, at McMaster University. And she's able to analyze, um, uh, take literally thousands of readings from a column of earth, uh, a core that's been extracted, a uh, soil core. And, and the soil cores we're talking about that we used at a Hatsastari are two and a half centimeters. So very minimal damage. And it's only the top 25, 30 centimeters of the site that, that we need. And, and she went out in two different field seasons, one I attended, one with Bonnie, and we managed in an area that we knew probably where we had longhouses because of metal detection work, where we were finding certain objects. They tended to be uh, metal objects, tended to be stored at the time of the village occupation along the walls of houses. So we had a number of indicators that we might be in an area with houses. So we had Beatrice run transects and she hasn't processed all the data yet, but preliminary results uh, from her maps that she's generated indicate that we might be able to use fine resolution uh, soil chemistry tests, uh, extracting small little samples and actually delineate where longhouse, longhouses are rather than digging them, right? And so that avoids yeah. the whole thing of disturbing sacred uh, materials, burials, uh, and even disturbing the site at all. So we're hoping, we're hoping that that really has, uh, and it's received a lot of attention from the archaeology community, this preliminary work. So we're hoping that that, that can be advanced and, and used as a technique. It would be amazing if we could actually do that. Oh, yeah. I think that would change a lot of how we do field work. What are some of the recovery techniques that you've used? Um, we've used both dry screening and using a smaller mesh than uh, three millimeter than what is standard. Standard um, in the province is six millimeter. Uh, we were lucky this is a very sandy site. So the soils pass through very, very easily. And we've also done uh, wet screening, which is using window mesh and water that water really separates the artifacts from the soils and helps to push the soils through the screen. Um, 
So really what this accomplishes, it, it allows us to recover smaller remains that normally would fall through larger strains. Uh, very important at, at Hitsistari, this is a, the historic period. And so there are a lot of um, trade items, glass trade beads that can be quite small, animal remains, uh, plant mm -hmm. remains. And um, so really, I guess, as screen size decreases, the number of remains increase. But there's also this balance that, I mean, not everything recovered is necessarily diagnostic because it gets so small. Um, with the glass trade beads, it's actually allowed us to look at the diversity within the collection and it's helped to, I think, increase that diversity. We've been able to find, you know, very tiny seed beads, which is unusual. Uh, similarly, with the animal remains, we've recovered small birds and rodents that help us to characterize the environment or specific niches within the environment that uh, could potentially have been missed. Uh, sort of using the standard larger screens. What sort of things tend to show up in the large mesh sized screens that don't show up in the small sized screens? Um, we're still recovering glass trade beads, but they're just mm -hmm. larger in size or, um, you know, pieces of ceramic or lithic or, mm -hmm. um, so those are the types of things that would normally be recovered in the larger screen size mm -hmm. and just larger pieces, um, I think so. Uh, and the small screen size is helping you to find smaller artifacts, but also some seeds, which normally you wouldn't recover in the larger mesh. Something like that. Exactly. Yeah. You've also done some interesting work on studying human diets in the past. For the benefit of our listeners, could you tell us what sorts of things we can learn about the diets of people in the past and what methods are often used for this? We can actually learn a tremendous amount of a human diet in the past. Um, everything from what foods are available and what foods are consumed the types of foods. Um, it has been used in different areas to determine whether people are using eating wild foods, consuming wild foods, or whether domestication is already underway. Uh, it speaks to the seasonality of, again, different foods eating over you know, the course of the year. Uh, we can understand whether a person's diet is, um, or the foods that they eat, if they're getting adequate nutrition uh, or enough energy. So there's a variety of different sources of data that archaeologists use to study human diet in the past, and it can be anything from oral tradition and ethno-historical text to the botanical remains that are recovered, carbonized seeds, um, uh, spores, animal remains. Uh, we can get insight into diet from actually human remains. Teeth provide us uh, information about the foods that were being ate and um, different types of pathology that we see uh, on teeth and in bones as well can again speak to the quality or the quantity of the diet. Um, and then there's stable isotopes. Uh, so these are uh, when organisms ingest foods, they contain common elements like carbon, nitrogen, and oxygen. And those elements are actually incorporated into the skeleton and they tell us, uh, give us insight into the types of foods that were eaten. So the, the old adage, you are what you eat, um, is true when you're dealing with stable isotopes. Hmm. 
A recent paper that you wrote provides an innovative alternative to analyzing human remains by using dog remains as proxies. Why dogs? Um, there's this human-animal bond that exists, right, between domesticated animals and humans, and it's existed for thousands of years. And that bond occurs at lots of different levels. It's um, There's a psychological level, emotional, there's sort of physical interactions with between animals and humans. Um, so the relationship between humans and dogs uh, uh, is really unique. It's symbiotic. It's uh, mutually um, beneficial. And it has really important implications for our research that's centered on the diet of ancient humans. Um, our research is sort of premised on the assumption that in the past, like today, dogs were intentionally fed by humans or that dogs had opportunity to consume byproducts of human diet through their contact with humans. And for that reason, researchers are starting to look at dogs as a, as a substitute um, for human data. Uh, human data, um, obviously there are ethical concerns surrounding um, the use of, uh, uh, you know, sampling from human remains um, and the disturbance of burials. It's, uh, uh, so, you know, wanting to avoid that. And then there's other reasons as well where human data wouldn't be available, whether it's preservation or, um, you know, remains, remains aren't found. Yes, from... Uh... From our point of view, from the year on when that uh, perspective, it's these kind of uh, proposed research of uh, collaborative research is very interesting because it's exactly the kind of uh, subject that we don't really know what was the relationship between dogs and our ancestors. And when Bonnie and, and Gary uh, proposed us this, this research, that was a, a nice opportunity to oh okay let's let's try to to better understand how was this relationship and then that's that's the kind of uh, of example that helped us to to step forward and to to ask a little question that can give us many many uh, uh, answers fascinating. What are some of the limitations of using dogs as proxies for humans? Um, there are biological limitations. There are cultural limitations. Uh, you know, uh, in terms of the biology, uh, obviously different metabolism. And um, but I think the big thing is probably having uh, other contextual information. Uh, so, uh, you know, to use dogs as proxies actually requires a very um, uh, comprehensive record of or context, really, uh, for the site. Um, and we're really, really lucky in terms of Ontario having sort of the ethno-historical record that we have, um, the connection with the Huron-Wendat and their oral traditions. Uh, so I think, uh, you know, without, in the absence of that, it would be um, much more difficult to interpret uh, the results that you get. How common are dog remains at Huron-Wendat sites? Actually, archaeologists find a relatively large number of dog bones at village sites uh, in a variety of different contexts. In Ontario, there are um, 
mortuary or burials, dog burials. Uh, dogs mm. have been recovered in structural features within houses and um, also mittens as well. Uh, so um, the historical record also speaks to observations made uh, historically um, on the number of dogs and how uh, how well you know dogs were held in such high esteem within amongst the Huron Wendat. Yeah, I guess I just add Otis too that in in Simcoe County on Huron Wendat sites in Simcoe County because it was so intensively occupied from about 1300 AD to 1650 AD by as many as 25 coexisting villages at any one time. And of course they're moving around the landscape, which is quite small, really. Um, all the, uh, uh, the, the area of Simcoe County is quite small, north, south, east, west, right? Relatively speaking in terms of square kilometers. So the number of villages and, and uh, farm fields, uh, you know, for maize, beans and squash that would have been created by even one generation of 20,000 25,000 here on Wendat living in that space, right? And then moving villages and carving out other, in other words, the number of white-tailed deer, for example, that were required for hide clothing and for meat and bones for tools and antlers and everything else. Um, we know by the time of Samuel de Champlain, because he participated in a deer hunt um, in ancestral areas in the Trent River Valley. Um, so quite east of Simcoe County, right, in 1615, 1616 time period, right? And and we know from that deer hunt that it was quite successful, right? But it gives you an idea of why are dog remains so, they're, they're often on, on 17th century here on Wendat sites, they're often the most commonly represented mammal in all of the list of, in your laundry list of mammals in your zooarchaeological or animal bone remains, right? And why is that? You might think, oh, they're eating their dogs in a big way rather than deer. And it's like, no, they're, they're going farther afield to hunt their deer. And Louis, help me out. You're, you're on one dot hunter and your PhDs in white-tailed deer biology. But, you know, they're, they're, they're hunting far away from their villages and probably only bringing back hides and meat. Louis, is that correct? Or? Yeah, yeah, probably when, when you have to bring back uh, dozens of deer from uh, a successful hunt, you just bring uh, the, 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 the meat, uh, the, the skin, and you leave uh, many, many bones uh, far from the village. So, so, so you just bring the, 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 the necessary uh, parts of, of, of the deer. So, yeah, that, that's me. These are exactly the the kind of uh, of uh, of uh, questions and answer, and we try to. It, it's much more than archaeology. It's 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 now uh, anthropology. It's uh, it's uh, behavior of of human. It's uh, hunting techniques, and it's it's as I said when when we want to move forward and, and to have a higher level of, of, of understanding these are exactly the the kind of collaboration that is interesting uh, when, when archaeologists are, are, are asking us okay why there are few of these bones and more of these and what do you think about that oh, okay that's that's interesting let's let's think about this and let's see what could be the answers and uh, that's uh, these are uh, uh, multi-level uh, uh, interpretation, which is much more interesting than uh, a regular uh, archaeological report uh, that 
is put on a shelf and, uh, mm -hmm. and yeah. that rest only the, the archaeologists. <laughs> what do we know about the roles and statuses of dogs in the past in Huron-Wendat society? Uh, probably, as Bonnie said, the, the, this uh, mutually beneficial relationship, this, uh, this close relationship to, to, to well, to, as, as, uh, as hunting partners, as uh, animals uh, that we're using in, 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 in winter on, on sleds uh, that we're uh, using to, to, well, the, it was probably uh, the, 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 yes, the same relationship as, as today, the, the mm -hmm. dog is the best of the human. Mm -hmm. Within the Tape Point Archaeology Project, what were you able to learn about human diet based on the dog remains? Um, so really our study is a pilot study uh, meant to assess the efficacy of, of whether or not dogs would, would provide a good substitute for human bone moving forward. Uh, and we did this by comparing the dog isotope values to human data that had already been collected in the 1980s. Uh, so what we found out, maize, it's a dietary staple for the heroin dot. It's clearly present in the diet of dogs. And we can assume that it's either through direct consumption or maybe they're eating other small animals that consume maize. Uh, we have some sense that from historical records that, you know, dogs that were companions were actually um, provisioned or fed or had even opportunistic feeding because they were allowed in the longhouses, um, certainly sticking their nose in a kettle uh, <laughs> to get food. So, um, but what we've seen in terms of the carbon uh, values for dogs is that they actually correspond really well um, at each of the village sites that we looked at through, through at each of these villages that are, um, cover a chronological period of about 250 years or more. Uh, so in that instance, um, in trying to determine whether or not, you know, the human diet contained maize, uh, I think dogs would serve as a good proxy. Nitrogen, that sort of tells you uh, where on the, um, uh, uh, where, where an animal is in terms of, uh, you know, what level they're feeding at. There's a lot of variability within the nitrogen from site to site. And I think that has to be probably established, you know, each archaeological context independently. So. What are your plans for the future at the Tay Archaeology Project? Um, so we're still uh, very much interested in learning more about the village itself and the structure of that village, uh, locating those longhouses. We've, you know, we're testing this minimally invasive methodology and we have some sense through soil chemistry and that, but uh, we, we do, because it is a test, we need to ground truth. So we will have to do some minimal excavation. So we'd like to go back and ground truth uh, some of the areas that we've identified as potential houses. Uh, so that would be one of the things. Um, in terms of securing the identification, whether or not this is in fact Karagawa, we believe so. Uh, there is 
it was in the historical records, uh, a small description of the village. So there are some elements or aspects of the village that have been mentioned, like a palisade, a triple palisade, also a cabin that's located outside the village where um, the visitors, Champlain, uh, the French musketeers, where they would have stayed uh, when they were residing there. Champlain resided for a, a winter, over winter. Um, so trying to locate that la- that cabin would also help to secure uh, uh, the identification as Karagawa. Do you have any advice for researchers who want to make their own work less invasive? I think collaboration between the archaeologists and the descending communities is, it's necessary. It's, uh, I mean, ethically and just that would be the starting point, Um, starting a dialogue, um, you know, uh, establishing a relationship. And considering the use of different minimally and non-destructive methods to address any concerns that that descendant community might have that, you know, they want to protect and preserve cultural heritage. Um, So finding that right combination, not all of the methods are necessarily going to work in a given situation. So you have to be open uh, to the application of a variety of different methods. Um, so we've listed some, we've, you know, the ones that we've used, but uh, there are other alternatives, as we said, that would be more appropriate for different sites. Um, Louis, Gary? Yeah, that's a good question, Otis, in terms of advice for researchers. Research archaeology in Ontario is only about 1% of all the licensed archaeological activities. So very small. We have a small impact on <laughs> on the field mm-hmm. but that being said researchers really have no excuse for not using um, minimally invasive uh, techniques because in terms of as Bonnie talked the conservation ethos of preserving as many archaeological sites in the ground for the future as possible that that's you know you're going to have to use less invasive techniques to in- investigate them. Um, also, it's beginning to uh, companies like Archaeological Services Incorporated, one of the largest con- uh, consulting companies, archaeological consulting companies in Ontario, have in the past, recent past, used uh, minimally invasive techniques on sites where they also have to excavate. So in other words, they've scanned the ground before they do the excavation um, and, and found that there's on certain sites, depending on uh, you know whether they're plowed or not, right? Certain techniques, uh, like magnetometers, right, are, are, have successfully delineated the edges of villages and where middens are and and even houses, right? So so it's still in a preliminary um, phase, and as we know, we still, as Bonnie mentioned, we still have to ground truth or or do some digging to determine that the the anomalies we're seeing with the remote sensing, uh, depending on the device you're using, those are anomalies. Now, whether they're cultural or natural features, that that still has to be, uh, the ground has to be examined to say, oh yeah, it is a longhouse wall, or no, it's just a, a bunch of boulders that the last glaciation of 15,000 years ago left here, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, and you're going to have to refine the techniques over the next little while, but hopefully, hopefully we get to the point where we do less and less and less digging and more and more remote sensing, minimally invasive work. But right now we're in that that transitional phase. Louis, did you want to comment on on that? 
Well, above above all, you have Seth, Gary, and Bonnie. Uh, uh, the uh, these collaborative research has to be uh, has to be fun. You have to to have to have fun when when you are working together. Mm -hmm. And to have fun, you have to to work with friends and to people that you trust. And uh, that's 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 the way I think Bonnie and Gary are. And, and I are, are working because we are more than collaborators now. We are, I think, friends. And, and it takes, it doesn't take one day or one week. It takes sometimes months and, and year to, to establish this, this relationship. But once you have this, then you, you are, uh, you have this open mind and this, this, this good spirit and this, this good soul. To, to collaborate and to, to propose things and to, to, to questions and to, well, that's, that's the meaning of collaboration. But above all of this, it, you have to, to, to have fun. And that's, <laughs> that's the way I, I think we, we are working now. It's uh, interesting and, and funny to, to discover these findings and to try to have the best interpretation and to have the best uh, image of how it was, how our ancestors were living. Absolutely. Well said, Louis. Well, this has been a very good discussion. I think that you've told us about some very interesting and useful approaches to archaeology. So, thanks for taking the time to tell us about your work. I hope that it will inspire other archaeologists to think about how they can best implement their own projects. Thank you, Otis, for inviting us. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much, Otis. Thanks, Otis, for hosting us. Well, thanks for being here. It was nice to talk to you all. Have a nice day. You too. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks. You've been listening to the Archeo Cafe podcast. For more information and news, check out our website or social media pages. Links can be found in the episode notes or simply by searching online for Archeocafe Podcast. If you have any questions or comments for the presenters or guest speakers, we'd love to hear from you. Until next time, I'll leave you with this quote from William Johnson Solis. In every branch of natural science, progress is now so rapid that few conclusions can be regarded as more than provisional, and this is especially true of prehistoric archaeology.